We're continuing uh, this morning's series that we started a few weeks ago called Preaching the Gospel. And we're looking together at how we can share the good news of Jesus in our cultural moment in a way that is not harmful or toxic or uh, oppressive, but rather life-giving in the way of Jesus. And this morning, uh, we've looked at uh, the first week kind of the importance of being a gospel people before we do the work of gospeling others. Last week, we looked at hospitality and what it looks like to open up our lives to others in the name of Jesus and to have a hospitable presence. And uh, starting last week into the next week, we're going to look at some specific practices on how, how we actually do this. Um, and so today, we're going to be talking about sharing our hope with, with our words. And uh, everything that I'm sharing today, just to be upfront, uh, really has come from lots of uh, reflection, trial and error, and just tons of failure. I, I think I shared with you guys like the first week, I am not a great evangelist. Uh, I am a teacher, and, and I do well. I was uh, actually, before coming to Indianapolis to start SOMA, uh, I was in a uh, megachurch, a couple of megachurches, and I, was, I became a Christian in a megachurch, and I was on staff, and I was kind of a teaching pastor, and so most of my work kind of happened within the church in terms of teaching and discipling people. And so we moved to Indianapolis in December of 2011. Um, man, it was like, okay, now I've got to go from that to actually getting around dinner tables and, and learning how to, in a city that I've never lived in with people that I don't know, I have a southern accent, I got a lot working against me, I'm a pastor in Broderpool, like how do, how do you share the good news of Jesus in a way that's, that's helpful? And so a lot of what I'm going to share today just comes from that journey of uh, experimentation. Uh, I remember one of the first things that we did when I moved to Indy with one of our members, I don't think he's in here this morning, but Dave Neff, um, we grabbed some of his friends and just gathered around a table at a breakfast spot here in Broderpool, and we began to just go through a book called The Reason for God Together and talk with both Christians and non-Christians about what it looked like to uh, encounter Jesus in the midst of our skepticism. And that was great training ground for me to learn how to do some of that work. And so um, I shared this morning as... Uh, <laughs> One beggar who's found some bread to other beggars, hopefully uh, also looking for bread in terms of how to do this well. So I want to start um, in 1 Peter 3 and talk about Peter's encouragement to this community and how he encouraged them to preach the gospel in their cultural moment. And then I want to take some time to understand our cultural moment and how we bridge now to sharing our hope in a similar way. Peter, uh, as I'm sure you know, was written, most people think, by uh, Peter, the disciple of Jesus, one of his inner three, kind of his inner circle. And he, at some point, church history tells us, made it up to Rome. And he's writing this letter from Rome to what's called diaspora churches and disciples, right? Essentially, uh, disciples of Jesus that have been scattered across the Roman Empire. Um, and in particular, this is a circular letter that was meant, uh, he wrote to uh, some urban churches and urban disciples in Asia Minor, kind of modern-day Turkey, and this would have been read out loud to those congregations and then passed around from city to city. And the Peter's primary encouragement is written to help them essentially maintain their faith and their loyalty to Jesus in the midst of intense cultural pressure, right? Uh, social exclusion, shaming, even occasional uh, physical violence. That's the context. And so this isn't um, syst uh, systematic kind of state-sponsored persecution like we kind of think of. Um, although uh, this is really on the eve of Nero, who was uh, a, a huge persecutor of the church. His big campaign of violence was only a few years away. Most people think this letter was written in the 50s, uh, mid to late 50s or early 60s. And so it wasn't that, but it was kind of similar to what we saw in the book of Acts, local kind of uh, cultural pressure, right? 
you had this network of family and friends and, and maybe uh, business associates and contacts. You had this allegiance to Caesar and to the way of Rome. You come to meet Jesus somehow through maybe a relationship with another disciple. Now your allegiance is no longer to Caesar as your Lord, but to Jesus as your Lord. And you're learning to live in this new reality. And this, this way of Jesus really comes up against the way of, of Nero and the way of Rome in a way that creates this kind of intersecting pressure. And so I think we said this a couple weeks ago during Acts, that the Christians were called atheists by Romans. They were viewed as a dangerous cult, as a threat to the social order. And so Peter's writing to these to this minority group who has very little social capital, very little influence, very little power. They owned very little in terms of possessions, had very little status. And he says, hey, you know what? You're you're still invited because Jesus did it. You're still invited to preach the gospel, to bear witness to the hope that you found in Jesus and his kingdom. And so what what was it in this book, in this letter, that Peter encouraged them towards? How How did he encourage these urban exiles to preach the gospel. Okay, I want to use this as our kind of template and pattern for how we think about this. And I think it summarizes what we've talked about really up to this point. So three things that we see here uh, in 1 Peter 3 and then zooming out to the entire letter. The first thing that Peter says, if you go back to verse 15, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. So step number one, Peter says, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy or set apart Christ as holy. The first week we talked about becoming gospel people before we do the work of evangelism. And that's essentially what Peter's saying here. The heart is not just your feelings or your emotions. Uh, In in this mentality here, the the listeners would have heard the heart through the lens of kind of Greek, uh, the Greco-Roman world, and then the Hebrew uh, context of the Old Testament. The heart is the executive center, right? It's it's the, the driver of our motivations, our desires, our thoughts, our feelings, All of that is kind of encompassed in the heart. And so what Peter is essentially saying is, fix the gaze of your interior world. Fix the gaze of your inner life, your heart, the wellspring of your life on Jesus and learn to submit to him as the Lord of your life. The way we might talk about the heart now as modern people is through the prism of identity, right? He's essentially saying, ground your identity in the holiness uh, of Jesus. That word holy just means set apart, right? To, to be like Jesus in this way, to be holy as he is. Uh, another way of thinking about holiness in the Bible is wholeness. Ground your identity in the wholeness of Jesus, his love. And then let your character be transformed from the inside out. Instead of being driven by the fear and the anxiety that's kind of swirling around you, you stay anchored and rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus. Stoke the fire of hope within you that burns and and burn with the love of God, burn with the holiness of Jesus, instead of, as he talks about here in this passage, being kind of driven by fear. So that's the first thing. Be a person that's devoted to Jesus. Then the second thing he says in verse 13 here, if you go back a couple of verses, is to be devoted to good works, be devoted to what is good. Who then will harm you, he says in verse 13, if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Throughout this chapter here, Peter talks about what it looks like to live a good life. And I know for some of us, uh, we confuse good works and maybe we're a little bit skittish about telling people to try to be good people um, because we're so afraid of a works righteousness. But you can't read the New Testament. You can't read the Sermon on the Mount and not see this is central to Jesus' vision 
of being a gospel person was doing good works, being salt and light, being a city on a hill. He says, let your good deeds shine in the Sermon on the Mount so that others will notice them and then glorify your Father in heaven. This is essentially Peter quoting the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about these. He talks about unity and reconciliation as critical for uh, others uh, seeing our life in Jesus. He talks about empathy and compassion. He talks about works of love and humility. He talks about being committed to nonviolence, not returning evil for evil or violence for violence. He talks about blessing our enemies rather than cursing them, being truthful in our speech instead of being liars, being people of peace and shalom and being prayerful. These are all kinds of good works that Peter has in mind for the church. If you go back two chapters to chapter two, he kind of summarizes this, I think, well, when he says this to the church, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles, literally the language there is resident aliens, as those who are citizens of the kingdom of God, living in the kingdom of this world, right? So we are not Americans who happen to be Christians. We are Christians who happen to be Americans, right? As citizens living in this world with this dual citizenship, resident exiles, resident refugees, you could say. Abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. So there's kind of a prohibition there. And then there's a positive vision for good works. Conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers... They will see your good deeds. They will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits, on the day of judgment. Your good works, seen and known and experienced and tasted by non-believers, will be the very thing that leads them to glorify God. This kind of hospitable presence in the world, this self-giving quality of life, should, he said, create a dissonance, right? Like this isn't how humans are supposed to act according to the narrative of this world or the narrative of the way of religion or the way of, you know, kind of secularism, right? And it provokes this kind of curiosity. Tell me more, right? Tell me more about the, the reason that you have for this radical hope. I mean, that's, that's essentially the formula for Peter. It's proximity and presence and a compassionate life full of good works that leads to this curiosity, right, about from the world around us. I love the way that the missionary Leslie Newbigin says it, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. Third thing that Peter says then, so we devote ourselves to Jesus as Lord, we devote ourselves to being a, a beautiful people doing beautiful works in the name of Jesus. Not as a means of our salvation, not as a way to curry favor with God, but because we're already God's beloved community. Out of that then, we engage these good works. We provoke this curiosity, and then he says, share the reason for the hope that you have. And do not miss this with gentleness and respect. This, this idea of sharing the reason, this word reason is the word logos, right? It, it, for, for the Greeks, it, the logos was kind of the energizing principle that ordered and drove their life in the world. So what is the reason? What's, what is it that makes sense, that gives us meaning and purpose and, and energizes a life of beauty and harmony and order and all the things that the kingdom of God is about? You better know that and you better be prepared to share that, not just when you're called before courts and administrators as they were, but just in your everyday life, just becoming fluent and sharing the reason, like why, why do you do that, right? Like I love, uh, I'm a Southern guy, so uh, the Southern novelist Flannery O'Connor. She says uh, something along the lines of one of her novels, you shall know the truth, quoting Jesus, and the truth shall make you odd. 
Like, the stuff we do is weird. It doesn't make sense. Why do you do what you do? Why do you parent your kids that way? Why do you spend your money that way? Why do you do your marriage this way? Why do you live as a single person in this way? It's, it's different, and it ought to provoke a question that we're ready to answer. And again, he says, do it with gentleness. That word gentleness is the word for meekness. It's the word that Jesus, the only time Jesus describes his own character in the Gospels. He says, follow me for I am lowly and gentle of heart. I am meek. I am, it's weird. Jesus said, I'm humble. And he actually was, right? Like you can't, I can't say, follow me because I'm humble. Now we're trying to be humble like Jesus. But Jesus could actually say, I am humble. I am lowly of heart. And it's so important that we get this right in a world of harshness and roughness and disrespect in terms of the way that we interact with one another, particularly online. How we share the good news of Jesus, right? Like our tone and our posture matters just as much as the content of what we say. Your content can be right and your tone be so off and you lose somebody because of your sarcasm, because of your mocking, because of your harshness. You need a way of preaching the gospel that is not arrogant and preachy and judgmental and shaming and harsh and coercive and just toxic in terms of our tone. So those are kind of Peter's words. Those are Peter's words to the church in terms of how they're to share the gospel. And again, remember their moment, they're, they're suffering. This is a suffering minority community, right? Now, we have a little bit of a different cultural moment that we're living in right now. And so I want to just take a moment uh, a few minutes to orient us, right? Um, this week, I had the chance to go with my kids to the mall. I don't go to the mall a whole lot. It's been a while. I went to the Castleton Mall. I told my kids, like, this is what every teenager used to do on Friday night when I was growing up, right? And they're like, what are you talking about? Um, and so we walked in. We're going to, you know, H&M or whatever, and I'm trying to get oriented to the mall. It's been a while since I've been there. And, um, and I was looking for, when you used to walk into a mall, they had what they used to call a mall directory. Any of you old enough to remember a mall directory? Okay, and on that mall directory, it was like, for those of you who are under, you know, 30 or whatever, like it was like a physical map that laid out the mall, had all the store names, and then there was this really important part of that map. It said, it would say, you are here with an arrow to that point. Now walk into the Castleton Mall, right into the middle of the mall, right by the Starbucks, into the, into the center of the mall. I can't find the directory and I'm getting anxious. I'm like, how do I know where to go if there's no directory? And I look over and there's a screen and it, and it like had a QR code on it or something. And I guess you're like supposed to, tap, I'm feeling so old, you're supposed to tap it. And so I'm like over there tapping it and it's nothing's happening. And everybody's like looking at me like, this guy is a moron. You know, what is he doing? The directory never came up. So I had to like wander around with my son trying to find a shoe store. Uh, it was super embarrassing. Now, I say that because we, we have to orient ourselves if we're going to understand how to share the good news of Jesus in our cultural moment. We have to understand where we've come from, right? And we have to understand where we are and where we're going as a society. And, and it, it's important. It's like you think about your family system, right? Like, so I, I want to just give you just a brief little um, uh, jaunt into some like history. And I know that some of you don't like that, so this could maybe feel like a little lecture. Just give me a few minutes because... Just like in your own family of origin, um, if you were to say, well, it doesn't really matter like that my grandfather was abusive, or it doesn't matter that like my grandparents were immigrants, it doesn't shape how I live now, of course it does, right? Of course it does. And so we need to be able to zoom out and look at the larger context of our kind of family of origin and what's been happening in our culture so that we can understand how to enter into uh, the moment that we're in and share good news in a way that's actually going to make it good news. So I just want to give you a little 
history, I want a simple diagram. Hopefully, I'll make this super easy. Um, and and it come, this comes from uh, a guy named uh, Paul Gold, who is kind of one of my like, heroes when it comes to understanding our cultural moment. This is essentially a model of disenchantment and reenchantment. And so I want to just, just briefly share these and kind of take you through and then talk about what this means for how we do this now. Okay, so what he essentially says is that prior to the Enlightenment, prior to the you know, 16th, 17th, 18th century, we, we largely lived in what he calls an enchanted world, right? Hans Borsma, who's a theologian, uh, says that there was a sacramental tapestry. I like that language, a sacramental tapestry. We lived in a, in a God-bathed, God-saturated world. A, a sacred order was woven through all of life, right? So it doesn't mean that everybody was a Christian, Certainly, there's all kinds of abuse and all that kind of stuff, all kinds of injustice. But it does mean that the basic framework for life was that God was kind of central, that faith was central and plausible and, and actually desirable if you were living that. So you did law with reference to God. You did science with reference to God. You wrote books with reference to God. You did paintings, right? Like you see God kind of everywhere diffused. That's the idea of the sac- sacramental tapestry. It's woven through everything, and it's almost just the air that you, you breathe, right? And this kind of went on from the Middle Ages all the way up until about the beginning of uh, America, essentially. Now, uh, there were a group of people who didn't love that, right? And who'd experience, some of them experienced negative things, and then some of them just had a different vision for life. And so there was a movement that began to, uh, kind of in a Romans 1 way, suppress the truth about God, right? Taking things that were true and saying these are actually lies and taking things that were lies and actually calling them truth, right? And he says that around this time, the secular, the secular mindset began to empty the world of meaning, empty the world of the transcendent. The enlightenment was essentially a, a massive movement across the world, really kind of taking shape in the 18th century, where they began to unravel this sacred order and this sacred kind of social uh, partnership they were pulling at those threads of the tapestry. And Charles Taylor, who's a, sec- who's a uh, Catholic philosopher, he calls this the imminent frame of secularism, right? So there's a banishment of the transcendent, right, of, of God and the supernatural, and there's a hyper-focus on the material world, right? Just what you can see, touch, taste, smell, your five senses, the scientific method, becomes the primary lens through which we look at and evaluate human flourishing. And we think about building a society. And so uh, one cultural commentator said, just as Jesus came to cast out the demons as a sign of the kingdom of God, secularism comes in with this ideology and seeks to cast out Jesus, cast out God, and cast out faith as a sign of the coming kingdom of progress. And there's a vision here for building now a society and pursuing progress without the presence of God, pursuing the kingdom without the king, and we live in what O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor, calls you know mostly now a Christ-haunted society. There's a memory, but it's growing fainter and fainter. And so, in this uh, kind of movement, faith in God is not central anymore. It's now contested. It's less plausible. It's less desirable for your average person in the world. And then we move to essentially what he says now is a disenchanted world. Disenchanted world is a world that's characterized by the felt absence of God, where God used to be everywhere. Now you have to search to kind of find God. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a world full of doubt, right? Because when we move God out of the equation, we, we begin to worship other gods, politics, marketplace, wealth, these kinds of things. And so it creates a lot of angst in us as we're searching for meaning, not outside of ourselves, 
but rather searching for meaning inside of ourselves, particularly through our feelings. In this frame, God and faith has not only contested, it's now resisted. And we feel this oftentimes as believers. Our faith is mocked. It's, 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 it's unbelievable, right? He, Gould goes on to say that belief in God in a disenchanted world is unwelcome, it's unnecessary, and it's unimaginable. God is unwelcome in the boardroom, the bedroom, the courtroom, and even many churches. And now there's massive barriers, right, to people coming to know Jesus, internal barriers and external barriers, right? Some of the big external barriers he notes, right, is that we live in a world in which now people believe that science is, is God, right, in a lot of ways. And again, I'm not anti-science, but science has disproven God and the need for faith, right? We live in a material-only world. Exclusive belief in Jesus is the only way to salvation is now viewed as intolerant and dangerous. God is not good. God is unjust and unloving and savage, Christianity offers an archaic and repressive and unjust ethic when it comes to human sexuality and marriage and the poor and race and so on and so forth, right? This is, this is the world in which we inhabit. These are the barriers that now face belief in Jesus. And now for the first time, not being a person of faith, right, is, is plaus- not only plausible but likely for many people because we don't live in that story anymore. Now, here's the interesting thing. Despite all of these changes over the past several hundred years, and if you live in a place like Indiana— We're not in New York City. We're not in San Francisco. This has been much more of a slow motion process, right? We largely, many of us grew up in small towns. I realize in Indiana, I grew up in the South. We're like, this is not mostly our reality. It was pretty friendly towards Christianity. But that's changing rapidly, particularly over the last couple decades. It is picking up steam, and we're moving more and more towards a disenchanted world, even here in a place like Indianapolis. Now, what's interesting is our methods for evangelism and how we think about sharing the good news are often aimed at the old world, not the new world, right? And so we assume kind of a Christian world, right? Or at least people who are familiar with Christianity and the basic story, rather than understanding there has been a massive shift, and that's not how people are showing up anymore at church. That's not how people are showing up in community anymore. There's a slide that I want to put up here just with uh, some of the changes in the ways that people have thought about evangelism. This was uh, a UK evangelist put this together. I thought it was really helpful. Back in the 1950s and 60s, post-World War II, the way to basically do evangelism was to kind of think of it like the Billy Graham years, right? Billy Graham came here to our city. He preached at the, you know, the big uh, dome there. And, uh, and basically, Billy Graham was connecting dots for people, right? You could assume that people basically knew the story, even if they weren't Christians. They, they knew the story. They understood guilt. They understood the Christian story. And basically, maybe they drifted away from church And Billy Graham is basically trying to convict them, like, you know the story, you've drifted from it, you're a sinner, come back to the story that you know, right? And so the Crusades and all this was essentially an attempt to connect those dots. And that's kind of how evangelism worked, for spiritual laws, if you grew up kind of in crew or whatever. Then the 1970s through the 90s, things began to shift, right? And you had the Jesus movement and the counterculture, and there was a big emphasis on apologetics, right? Like providing proof. If you've read Josh McDowell, or if you've read, you know, some of these like older apologetics groups, C.S. Lewis is certainly in that vein. There was an attempt to try to convince people intellectually that Christianity was true. People were encountering other religions. They were encountering other ideologies, and they're beginning to ask different kinds of questions that demanded different kinds of responses. Also during this time, there is kind of the, the relevance movement, right? There was this idea that church, the problem with church in the 80s and 90s for like my parents' generation is they like Jesus, they don't like the church. Church is irrelevant, church is boring. So you have lots of missionaries coming back to the United States 
trying to use like missiological and contextualized theology and to apply it to the church. And they're like, okay, let's make church more relevant, right? Let's do, let's do boomer church, right? Let's do church that appeals to people that's attractional and attractive. And let's see if we can't make church more exciting for people. And that was kind of how a lot of the church growth movement and the seeker-sensitive movement unfolds. Then the 21st century hits, right? And then we have a whole new world. We have abuse. We have injustice. We have, which again, have always been happening, but they're more in our face because we're seeing them nonstop on social media. And I think for a lot of Christians, the response to that, and I'll just call this the integrity approach for the last maybe like 10 or 15 years, has been let's just put our head down and be quiet and do good works because I don't want to be identified with all of that mess out there. And so I'll just be a good person, try to live my life and keep my head down and hope that somebody asks me for the hope, the reason for the hope that I have. But there's a little bit of shame and embarrassment when it comes to actually sharing the gospel. I say all this just as a, as a setup to say, like, times are changing. Times have been changing. And we have to adapt our methods to the context in which we live. We have to understand this is the context in which our neighbors are being shaped and formed and how they're showing up. And again, not all at an academic level, not all in the same way, not all at the same speed, but these are some of the things. And so if we go back to that chart, what I love about this way that Gold lays this out is the disenchanted world, he says, is a failing script. Secularism as a way of life is failing. It is leading to a kind of boredom and ennui, a restlessness, a cynicism, and a loneliness, right? Like that's, loneliness is an epidemic. And that's not me saying, that's Vivek Murthy, our U.S. Surgeon General. Loneliness is one of the biggest crises facing the modern West. And so what he says is, we need to engage the disenchanted world by tapping into people's longings and desires for truth and beauty and goodness. Pay attention to these, what one philosopher calls signals of transcendence. As people's life scripts are failing, we have an opportunity to reawaken their desire for the kingdom of God. We have an opportunity to help them return to reality, to re-enchant them. And again, I'm not talking about some kind of Christian theocracy where like Christians take back Washington and impose some vision. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just us living as a countercultural community of love and justice and freedom and hopefulness in a world that has largely lost those things or is looking for them in all the wrong places. The next slide, Gold pictures this, and it's really helpful. Like, people are longing for truth in a world of fake news and conspiracy and lies. People are longing for goodness in a world that feels so broken. That's why there's so much outrage, right? It's because people want goodness. They want justice. And there's a longing for beauty, right? And so we have an opportunity through a Christian reason, through Christian conscience, through Christian imagination to help them overcome those barriers and to encounter the true good news of Jesus. That's what it means to, to tap into and reawaken desire. I love the novelist Mark Helper, and he says it like this, to see the beauty of the world is to put your hands on the lines that run uninterrupted through life and through death. Touching them is an act of hope for perhaps someone on the other side, if there is another side, is touching them too. It, it's finding those threads in the sacramental tapestry of God's world, taking the hands of our neighbors and saying, hey, God is reaching out to you with truth and goodness and beauty. How can I bring your hands together so that you might find the embrace of God in his world that he's created through Jesus Christ? Now, and, and what we're trying to do there is move God and faith 
from a place of being resisted to being compelling, right? Being a compelling narrative, a compelling vision of what it looks like to be human in the world. And, and not only that, but to make it a plausible thing, right? Like people are growing, growing up in a world now where Christianity seems implausible. They have no idea what it looks like to live as a Christian. And so we are modeling a way that is becoming plausible. Like this is how we live in this world, and this is what it could look like to be a Christian, and here's how that could be a life-giving thing for you. Now, how do we actually do that, right? Because, again, this is, for some of you, just like, all right, can we please move on? I don't like history. I don't like philosophy. Okay, great. Like, tomorrow, you're going to get on a Zoom call, right? And you're, you know, nice shirt and your uh, sweatpants, right? You're going to go and you're going to have coffee with somebody. And you're not going to be talking about philosophy. You're not going to be talking about history. You're just going to be trying to figure out how do I share the good news of Jesus with them? What does it actually look like? What are some practices that would help us in this particular moment, given all of this background and all that's changing around us? How do we do what Peter said in our hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, being ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's in us? Three practices that I think could help us. The first thing, and again, this is not rocket science, but I think it's really hard, is uh, we've got to be cultivating authentic friendship with people, particularly with the last, the lost, and the least, right? Um, Telling others about Jesus, Peter says, starts with relational proximity. Did you catch uh, Peter's words in 1 Peter 2? He instructs the church to live among the Gentiles, live among them, befriend them, Live your life in such close proximity that they actually are close enough to see the way that you live, to see how you respond to the ups and downs of life. I say authentic because it it needs to be the kind of friendship where there's this free space where they can know I'm a follower of Jesus and I can know and they can say that they're not and we can still be friends and spend a lot of time together. That's authentic, right? Like a lot of us have relationships but we're always like spinning, we're always caveating, we're not really sure if we can tell them that like we went to church this weekend and we're actually followers of Jesus. I'm talking about the kind of authentic relationship where that is a known thing. And then we are living in such a way and living with them and sharing life where they get to see the real us, the unedited version of us, the the version of us that yells at somebody, right, and has to apologize. The version of us where our house is not all put together and it's messy. The version of us where we are, you know, trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in the ups and downs and messiness of life. And they're close enough to us and they're comfortable enough with us to ask questions like, why do you do that? Why? Tell me why. That's weird. I don't know anything about that. That, I didn't experience that in my family growing up. And again, Peter here is just simply following the method of Jesus, right? In John chapter 1, John says that Jesus left heaven. He took on flesh. He tabernacled among us. Literally, I love this translation. It says he moved into the neighborhood. Jesus left all of the security and the comfort and the privilege of heaven, and he steps into our world, and he just befriends people. Did you hear the last week one of the things that the, the accusations against us, against Jesus, that Jesus is like proud of? He's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He knew people's names and their stories and their desires. They knew where to come when they hit the place of pain. They knew where he'd be because he touched them. He visited their homes. He asked them questions. He healed them when they were sick. He forgave their sins. He laughed and he wept with them. 
They were amazed with his teaching and his way of life. I wonder, social psychologists who studied like the psychology of conversion, they say that people are most open to good news, the good news of religion or Jesus in our case, when they face trauma or they face some kind of life transition. Now, historically, because it opens up what psychologists call a meaning void in their life, and it's disorienting. Now, historically, people would go to church. They'd look, actually, for the red door. Churches used to have red doors. And they'd say, that's the place where I can find meaning and hope. Now, everything we just learned means that they probably won't seek out a church because they don't trust the church. They don't trust Christians. They will rarely come to me because they definitely don't trust pastors, right? So when that happens, how will they process their pain? Who are they going to go to, right? They're going to get on social media. They're going to read a book. They're going to listen to Oprah. They're going to listen to a podcast. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, where are they going to go to process their pain? They need authentic relationships with Jesus' people to process their pain. When we started SOMA, um, I was like, I have no idea how to start a church. Um, and so, you know, essentially, like, I went through some training. They hand you all kinds of books, and, you know, you read all kinds of books about how to plant a church. And one of the more popular philosophies of that time was basically like a big marketing strategy. You know, you gather a bunch of people, raise a bunch of money, and then you launch large. You know, you leverage all of your influence and have a big church, and then, you know, you're going you're to be self-sustaining. It's going to be awesome. Well, the unfortunate thing was, uh, one, I didn't want to do that. Two, I wasn't very good at that, even though I was a marketing major, uh, kind of a failed marketing business major in an undergrad. And three, I just thought, that's not really the way of Jesus, right? Like, that's not what Jesus calls us to do. And one of the things we said to our, our team, at a very small team of us, we said, what if our goal wasn't to launch big or try to market something that is not really authentic anyways? What if our goal was simply to make friends? And so that's what we did, actually. The first year of our church, we set a goal to make 50 friendships as a team. And, we, and I kept a list. And, and I, by friend, I mean like not just I know their name, but they know my name. And when life gets hard and they hit points of trauma and transition, we're actually the ones that they call to process and pray with them. What would it look like for us to become that kind of community? So we coach ball teams, right? We open up our home and we throw parties. We show up in the, the hard, awkward spaces, and all of a sudden, in a year, we have, one time, we had like 70 people hanging out at our house. Six months ago, we didn't know anybody. And I remember a friend of mine who grew up around the church who I'd have been having conversations with, he came to this party, and uh, he'd been kicked out of a Christian university for, for partying, basically, and he didn't really want anything to do with Jesus. And he said, wow, like, I've never been a part of a community like this. This is awesome. And I thought, okay, we're making progress. That's what it means to walk in authentic friendships. I mean, my goal oftentimes in relationships with non-Christians or when people come to our church with lots of wounds is just like, what if they left saying, I like him. He wasn't as bad as I thought. <laughs> he wasn't as weird as I thought. I'd like to hear from him again. I mean, that's what you hear in the book of Acts when Paul preaches, and he does it in such a way that it leaves people curious. And they may not put their faith in him right in that moment, but He's established rapport in a relationship, and there's curiosity. And I, I want that for us. I think we have historically done a great job at relationship building. Community is one of the best things that we do here at SOMA. But my fear for us is we get older, and our lives get more full, and community gets thick within the walls of the church, is that we stop making space for non-Christians. 
right? Like every piece of research out there says after about 10 or 15 years, the majority of people's relationships for a new Christian become predominantly other Christians. And again, that's not a bad thing, but think of it like an outlet, like our, our, our plugs get overloaded and full and we don't have space for our coworkers. We don't have space for our neighbors. We're so busy doing stuff with other Jesus people that we forget to make space for the very people for whom Jesus came. And so I just want to encourage us to continue to think about how do we create that space for authentic friendship, right? Do we have real friendships with people, not hypothetical people, but like real friendships with people who don't share our allegiance to Jesus? And again, the way that you know is they're seeking you out when they hit that place of pain. I'll never forget another guy um, that our community had built a relationship with here in Broderpool for years, not just us, but a whole community of people coming around as a guy that you can grow up around the church and was very, it's very hard to like crack down to the heart level, very kind of surface level conversations, but just an amazing uh, guy and his wife and his kids. And uh, a couple years into our relationship, his mother died. And it was super traumatic, very close family, grew up in Carmel. Um, we all lived down here in Broderpool. And I remember uh, just him reaching out and just said, hey, can we grab coffee? And we got to coffee and he's like, dude, I'm, I'm hurting. I, I don't know how to process this. This was so unexpected. He's like, where do you, literally, so he said, like something along the lines of, where do you find hope when something so devastating happens to you? And I just had this beautiful opportunity to just open up and share my story and how God had rescued me and, and the hope that he had given me. And again, I don't know that he became a Christian. He actually, shortly after that, moved away. Uh, but I, I know that God gave me that opportunity, and I was just so encouraged and so happy that he reached out to me in that moment because we had a relationship. So everything starts with relationship. Then after relationship, we then just practice with our friends deep listening and discernment. Deep listening and discernment. I mean, I think one of the great fears in uh, preaching the gospel is we hear that word preaching and we're like, I'm not a preacher. I don't want to do the like weird sales tactic thing with people. I don't want to be, you know, over the top. And I, I just feel this pressure. I've got to do a bunch of talking and selling and pitching and like steering awkward conversations to Jesus, you know, it's like you're watching a football game and, you know, coach like substitutes, you know, a player and you're like, did you know that Jesus is a substitutionary atonement for your, you know, like you're at the, you're at H&M and you're just like, have you been clothed with Jesus? I mean, like that's kind of like, where's the, how do we do that in a way that's not weird? But that's not like talking is not really the way we persuade people anyways, right? Like in any relationship, you know this to be true. The more you talk, the more you try to change people, the less they listen, right? Any parents, how's that going for us, right? Like if, if you're a therapist, lots of talking at people doesn't usually change them. If you're a coach, if you're in social work, you know that most influence comes through a, a presence, right? An empathetic presence where we draw near, and we actually ask more questions than we talk. We begin to probe in their heart and get them talking. And we listen and then we respond to what they're actually saying rather than trying to just run off a script on somebody. And then as they open up, we gently guide them to discover the answers for themselves. So I just want to invite you into that kind of sharing of the good news. Just the practice of listening, the practice of discerning where people are at. Now, I don't have time to go into this, and I shared it in the Acts series, but I just want to put this up again because we need to slow down to be discerning where our neighbors are 
in terms of uh, their relationship with Jesus. We shared this. The Engle scale was developed by a missionary. Um, again, just understanding that everybody's on a journey when it comes to their faith, and most people are not starting at repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, maybe like they did uh, in different generations. I'd say the majority of people that I encounter are below no knowledge. They don't want to know anything about Jesus, right? And so the question becomes, how can I help them take the next step to just being aware that there's a good God, maybe, who loves them and a Christian who cares about them, right? Like, we just have to be able to discern where they are. Next slide. We also need to discern where they are in terms of openness, right? Are they open and hungry and seeking and looking, or are they closed? They think this is absurd. They're opposed. Like, those are different postures. And when we put those together, we have what's called the gray matrix, which is a great way for us to just kind of plot out where our friends might be in terms of their relationship with Jesus, because the approach For a person in the lower left quadrant who's closed with no knowledge, what you might call a happy pagan, and a up at the top, probably a wounded, uh, you know, nun, an ex-religious person who no longer identifies, who's cynical, way different approaches, and and a much longer arc in terms of time and, and patience when it comes to knowing Jesus. And so that work of discernment is so, so important. Let me give you uh, another tool. Um, to just ask powerful questions, okay? So I'm, I'm a big believer in powerful questions that help us expose where people are at. Because listen, everybody has a gospel story. Everybody has a narrative, even if they're not aware of it, of how they understand life and how they make meaning and make sense and interpret life. Um, one author um, calls this a, a cosmic code. It's like woven into the fabric of the universe, right? He puts it in this language. I'll just run through this, and we'll, we'll put all this out on, online. You can get this later, but let me just run through it. It's really helpful. Everybody, he says, has an ought. What is the way that the world ought to be, right? That, that's, that's creation. We all have something that we think, a, a design in mind, right? So when somebody says, this is an injustice, then the question becomes, why is that an injustice? And what is it that you're longing for, right? Well, I believe the world should, should be or ought to be a just place. Why? If you're not a follower of Jesus, why? Like, that, those are ought questions. Then there's is questions, right? Like the brokenness of the world. This is the way the world is. And we can kind of begin to diagnose the brokenness of our world and enter into that with it. And then there's the way that the world can be. This is the redemption that people long for that Jesus came to bring. And then there's the will be, the world to come, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And so next slide, what we want to do is just begin to ask questions and try to probe into people's story and try to get a sense for where they are. We can ask simple questions. Like Jesus always asked this question to people who were seeking him. What do you want? John chapter one, what are you looking for? I want purpose. I want meaning. I want hope, right? What, what do you want? Why is that important to you? Who taught you that, right? Did you learn that in your family? Did you learn that from a professor at IU or Purdue or Butler? Who taught you that? And is that really true? I love Dr. Phil's. This is not Jesus, Dr. Phil. How's that working out for you? Like you say you believe this. Is it leading to the flourishing that you're longing for? And if not, then maybe you should think about a different way of doing it. That's not God's fault. That's yours. (laughs) Tell me more about this. What are you going to do about that? How can I support you? And through all of these questions, Over time in a relationship, we're looking for what one educator calls generative themes, just themes that energize people and that get them excited and points of contact between the gospel of Jesus and the gospel they're believing. And we enter into that. And sometimes it means we affirm. Yeah, yeah, like I long for justice too. I long for freedom too. Right, that's a God-given desire. Sometimes we confront. 
Yeah, I I long for justice, but justice is not going to come in the way that you're seeking to bring it about. Freedom's not going to come in the way that you think it's going to come about. Freedom only comes as we ironically and paradoxically submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus. That's true freedom, right? Sometimes we confront. Sometimes we lament. This is awful. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. And we just enter in instead of just arguing. I love Colossians 4, 5. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. Sometimes that means you just shut up and listen. Excuse my language. Sometimes that means we just plant a seed, right? Sometimes it means we we share the story. But it may not mean we do it all at one time. We make the most of the opportunity, And that requires a sort of spirit-led discernment to know what does this person need? Not what do I need to project on them out of anxiety, but what is truly going to serve them in this moment and help most point them to Jesus and show them that I care about them. The last thing, just quickly, is then we invite them into community. And I think this is probably the biggest message of Peter for us and was a big paradigm shift for me, right? When When I begin to think about evangelism, I just get anxious. I just don't feel like I'm good at it. And I feel like all this weight to do it on my own. If I say the wrong thing, I'm going to like jack this person's eternity forever, you know. But, but remember that Peter is writing this letter to a community. He's writing this letter in the plural, telling them how to share their collective hope. Preaching the gospel is a team sport, It's something we do together. There's not a person that I know in our community that has come to faith in Jesus in 10 years that didn't come through a community of people investing in a relationship and sharing their hope with them, right? People need a tribe to overcome the inertia of what's familiar. They need a tribe to see the plausibility of Christianity, not just in word, but in deed. They need to taste and see real flesh and blood relationships. And so you might be a raging introvert, and you might be terrible at telling the story, but you know what? You got Matthew Roars in your community who's amazing at that, right? And you got Jean who's so kind, and she's loving. And you got, I mean, like, we've got a community of people to help offset where we're not gifted. And that's what we need, a community. One of the tools that we're going to begin using this year as a church that I just want to commend to you is Alpha, right? Alpha is just an evangelism strategy. It was developed in UK in a very secular context. And it's basically just getting friends together over a meal to share dinner and to talk about life's biggest questions. If you're interested in learning more about Alpha, actually, we have people here, uh, Caleb and O and some others, that are opening up their homes and going through Alpha, just using it to create opportunities for uh, good conversation, right? And it's extremely effective, I think, in terms of overcoming some of the obstacles and barriers that keep people uh, from Jesus and have them actually running away from Jesus. It's not the only way to do it, but we have seen these kinds of things be effective in terms of ways that we can do this in community. So I want to encourage you to be thinking about how do we, as a community, invite others. And if you're interested in helping be a champion for Alpha or lead an Alpha group, please write that down in your Connect card. Let us know because we're going to be looking to raise up a team and hopefully get Alpha online this year at SOMA. Okay, as we go to pray and take communion together, just this week's practice, our invitation for this week, is going to be simply what we just talked about, discernment and prayer, right? There's a practice guide that's in our news weekly. Uh, We shared out on social media. Um, What we want you to do is just to spend some time this week discerning 
Last week, you mapped out your neighbors. Who has God placed in your life? This week, we want to look together at where are they in their spiritual journey? And maybe as a group we, or a family or a discipleship group, we just begin to talk about where are they and how can we help them take the next step? Where do I need to strengthen my friendship with this person? Where do I have opportunities to pray for and bless this person? We just want to discern that together with others in our community and then enter into a space of intercessory prayer for them. Peter talks here in chapter 3 about being prayerful. He says, God is with the righteous. He hears their cries. He hears their prayers. And so we want to begin to cry out for God on behalf of our friends, naming them by name and praying that God would do what God does through the work of his spirit, right? We're not responsible for saving people. That's the work of God. God is the missionary. We saw that through the book of Acts. So we want to pray that God would open up those hearts and God would do the work that we can't do in our own strength. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the good news that you are at work bringing about hope in our lives, that you are present to us, that you brought hope into this world by entering into the human condition, by demonstrating and living out and embodying your kingdom, your love, your mercy, your grace, by forming a community full of your spirit to then continue your work in the world. And God, we want to just join in that It's the greatest calling in the world to be a part of this kingdom community and to be bearing witness to the kingdom reality that you are working in us, to work that out through us and to offer that to our friends and neighbors is a great privilege. And so God, would you teach us, would you show us, would you help us to overcome the fear and the anxiety and uh, the shame that maybe keeps us from doing that and to move out with confidence this week to share the hope that we have with our friends and neighbors. Give us discerning hearts, give us prayerful hearts. God, we do pray for your renewing presence to be experienced by our friends and neighbors and even our enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.